0: Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who He says He is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in Scripture and dependent on God's Spirit. The book of Galatians is a gospel clarifying letter that unpacks the richness and completeness of what Jesus did for us in His death and resurrection. It clearly defines what the Gospel is and is not for its readers. It helps us realise the depths of God's love for us in a life of relationship and obedience to Him in His power. Please continue listening for today's message. So this morning we're continuing in Galatians. So if you've got your Bible with you or a device, then please turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 29. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. So Galatians 3, 15 to 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer no longer sorry, under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to promise. This is the word of God.
1: Thank you, Jane. It is very good for me to be with you this morning and carrying, carrying on with Galatians. I do come in a little bit of weakness this morning. So on Thursday, I got an infection on my cheek here which is yes. And then it got into my eye and my ear and my, my Friday, my whole side of my face was swollen. It looked like Ryan had brought full church discipline to me. Um, I'm joking. That's not how we do church discipline around here. Um antibiotics worked amazingly. So my face is less swollen this morning. Well, at least I think so. So if you're wondering like, does he have something on his face? Yes, I do. And, um, If you like, his face doesn't look any different. Maybe I'm not as pretty as I think I am. Okay. Um, Anyway, it's just got nothing to do with where we're going this morning, but I thought it was a good disclaimer that he didn't spend the whole morning going, does he have something on his face? Now, (laughs) um, before we get into this text, which is theologically dense and incredibly rich, I just want to celebrate something. I want to celebrate the goodness of God in us as a community. At the beginning or the end of last year, we, we always go through the process of going, God, what do you want us to preach through? What is the book? What is it? And we felt quite strongly God lead us into the book of Galatians. And it's been amazing. And it is so encouraging as a leadership to, to be on this side of that decision, getting before God, 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 what? And he says, Galatians, we get into Galatians and seeing the profound impact it's having on us as a community. It's having a profound impact on us as leaders and preachers. I don't know if you've noticed, but the preachers seem a bit more fired up than usual as we grapple with the beauty of the gospel and we delight in the gospel But we're also, as preachers, having more people than normal come up to us after meetings going, the pennies are dropping. I'm starting to understand the freedom that God actually called me into and what it means to be a son and daughter of God. And that's encouraging. It's God's doing something. God's working in this community. And it's not just us. It seems like in our community, there's a real sense of God at work and moving powerfully. And there's something beautiful around this idea of us delighting in the gospel. And as we delight in the gospel, we're starting to realize and experience it's the Father's delight for us. I mean, there is that beautiful moment back in the beginning of Galatians where, where Paul says that the Father was delighted to introduce me to his son. He was pleased to introduce me to his son. Like Paul, at his worst, God said, yeah, I want you to meet my son. And then this beautiful re- realization that Paul said, uh, his understanding of the gospel is that Jesus loved me and died for me. And these truths are starting to wash over us as a community. We can see it in, in ourselves, me and myself and us as a community, the beauty and delight of the Father for us. We did it on The Weekend Away and this wonderful choreography of The Weekend Away, the theme of The Weekend Away, that Young Adults Weekend was The Father's Delight. And then you come back to a sermon where Ryan preaches the same thing, The Father's Delight and that the invitation is to know Him and live by faith in Him. It feels like God's saying something to us and he's reminding us of the spirit and the power of the spirit, and that there's this beauty that he's poured out His very presence into us as a community. And we're going to be leaning into that a bit more as, as we start looking at how do we are called to live light and light uh, live life in light of the spirit. We've got a Holy Spirit Insight evening coming up where we're going to worship and enjoy God and, and really unpack what does it mean to live by the spirit, not under the law. And so that God really is guiding and leading us, and it is so encouraging. And there's been this shift in the book from Paul defending his gospel message and defending his authority. He's now shifted in chapter three, that's been the last two weeks and this week, contending with his opponents saying, you guys are missing the dynamic between the promise of Abraham and the Mosaic covenant. And then from chapter four, he's gonna shift quite drastically into, well, if the law's behind this, what what does life in the spirit look like? And so we should be feeling that tension. Okay, well, if we're letting go of that, where do we go? And this wonderful coming weeks, He's gonna invite us to know what it means to live by the Spirit. And I just wanted to celebrate God's goodness and leading us and guiding us and the power of His Scriptures. As we go through His Word, He speaks to His people in loud and profound ways. Now, for this text that we're about to unpack, I just wanna... I just wanna frame it in the the context of our current culture because I think that Paul has a lot to say to us that we can lose if we just think, oh, that was back then and we don't bring it from back then into the now moment. And I've reframed as preachers and leaders, we framed our cultural moment quite often, but I just wanna remind us as we move towards this text that, that there's a unique and interesting thing that's taken place in our culture over the last little while. And what it is is that it used to be that those who came with a legalistic judgmental and a whole bunch of rules, the people who used to kind of do life that way used to be religious people. But actually what we've seen is that in, in the shift of culture that, that regulations and rules and moral performance and um, works-based righteousness and, and, and being okay with people has actually shifted into a culture thing. And what we see around us is we see politicians and ideologies and movements saying, hey, you need to post this on your social media, you need to believe this, you need to say this, you shouldn't say it like that, you should say it like this. If you say it like that, then you're wrong. And if you say it like this, then you're right. And if you say it in the right way, do the right things and follow all our rules and regulations that we're putting on you, then you can belong to us. And this is all sides of the conversation. And it's a belonging that is based in, in a works-based righteousness by a set of rules that people are putting on each other. And as we play this out in our culture, what we're seeing is that we're becoming more hostile and tribalized and divided than we have been in a long time. I would say that, that, that the tensions between ethnic groups are high at the moment. The tensions between men and women are high at the moment. Even the tension between the young and old are increasing where, where the old are looking at this generation going, you've all gone crazy, what's going on? And the young are looking up at the old going, you, you were so wrong in the previous generations. How could you have got it so wrong? And what you do is you, you don't have to spend a lot of time on YouTube or Instagram or, or other platforms to just see what it's led to is us all shouting at each other and no one listening or finding each other. And it's increasing, not decreasing. And the text that we're about to dive into this morning actually speaks incredible hope into that hostility. It speaks incredible hope into our culture. And it gives us a message that I'm gonna argue is different from every other message out there. And we as Christ followers get to live in the beauty of that. And I hope that the text this morning will help us figure out what it is that God has done for us to bring life to our cultural, current cultural realities. And as we look at this text, we're gonna see that the, 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 the promise still stands. We're gonna see that we no longer need a babysitter and we're gonna see that we are brothers and sisters of promise. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna dive in. Father, I ask that as we come to you and come to your word this morning, that you would speak loudly and that you would speak clearly to us. Father, you you have done so many wonderful, incredible things. And I pray, Father, that we would see those things freshly this morning. Father, that you would speak in such a way that we would be amazed at your grace and that we would learn what it is to live in it and enjoy its freedom in very real ways. Father, your invitation to us is always an invitation into life, joy, and freedom. And I pray that we would taste some of that this morning freshly. Move in us we pray, amen. So just a bit of context to to where we pick up our text this morning, it's quite helpful. As I've said that in chapter three, Paul shifted gears to now directly engaging his opponents. And he started that two weeks ago when Steve was preaching and, and his argument was, Um, you guys are starting at the Mosaic Covenant. You're starting at the law with Moses and we just need to go back. You need to understand that God's redemptive history actually starts earlier than that with Abraham. And there's something unique and different about the promise made to Abraham to the law. So let's go back to that and look at that. And that's his first argument that he makes and he showed why. Then the second thing he said is, and also remember as Christ follows that you share an experience of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And that that shared experience of the Holy Spirit being poured out came to you, not by works of the law, but by faith. So therefore continue in faith and continue in the spirit. And then Paul went on to argue last week as Ryan unpacked that, hey, there are two paths set before us in light of that reality. You can choose the path of curse, which is under the law, or you can choose the path of blessing, which is under the promise of Abraham. And you can choose which one, but under the law, you know that no one keeps the law perfectly and therefore you're cursed. And Christ became a curse so that, so that he could do away with that curse and so live by faith in the Father, live by faith in Jesus. And that's the path to life and blessing. And Paul picks up and continues that argument now in the text that, that we just read. And the first point he makes is that the promise still stands. Look at Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. My children have this law, this universal law. Whenever there is a dispute about who deserves to play with the toy, the universal law is I had it first. I had it first. It's like universal from the youngest of ages. And Paul says, actually, he uses a human example that would have been very prevalent to his Jewish audience. He's saying, like, we live in covenants. We know what covenants are. We are a people of covenant. And we know that a covenant that has been ratified, that has been sealed, that has been um, made valid is not made invalid by a covenant that comes later. And what Paul is doing is he's saying to his Jewish opponents, is he's saying, you have made a fundamental mistake in understanding the relationship between the covenant of promise that went to Abraham and the covenant, the Mosaic covenant of the law that went to Moses. And in some of that problem is that you think that because the Mosaic covenant came after the covenant that was given to Abraham, that it somehow shapes and informs and brings clarity and supersedes the covenant of Abraham. In some ways he's saying, you believe that there was the covenant of Abraham and then it wasn't quite complete and it had these tentacles out waiting to connect to the covenant of the law and they overlap. And now we get a full picture of God's plan in redemptive history. And these covenants speak to each other and the covenant of Moses supersedes the covenant of promise and all these laws and regulations still stand. And Paul's going, no, you've, you've got it all wrong. These are two completely independent and separate covenants which is a radical thing for Paul to be saying to his Jewish audience. These are different. These are not the same. They don't speak. and one, This one doesn't supersede that one. And he's gonna actually argue that, that pro, the, the, the covenant of promise supersedes the Abrahamic covenant. And his main point is these are two different covenants. And just because this one came later doesn't nullify the one that came before. And then he goes on to show how these are such different covenants. And the first way he goes is that they were ratified differently. They were sealed differently. The covenant of promise, the covenant made to Abraham came by a promise from God directly. Verse 17, a covenant previously ratified by God. And what he's saying there is he's saying, hey, God went to Abraham. He said, Abraham, you are a pagan moon worshiper. And I, out of my grace, have chosen you and I'm going to bless you and I'm gonna make you a great nation and your sons and daughters of that nation will, I will be their God and they will be my people and they will, I will pour blessing upon blessing upon you and you will become a blessing to those around you and you will inherit land and ultimately you will inherit the world. Promise. And the beauty of promise is that God is saying, I will do something. When God ratified the, the covenant with Abraham, do you know that Abraham was asleep? God put him to sleep as he, he sealed the covenant. God saying, this is a covenant of promise, which means I'm going to fulfill this covenant. I'm going to keep this covenant. And the blessing of this covenant is gonna come to you by grace, come to you by promise. On the other hand, we have the covenant of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of law. And in verse 19, Paul speaks to how that covenant was ratified. And he says, the covenant of law, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. It is a dense sentence. And simply what Paul is saying there is that the covenant of law was ratified by God coming to Mount Sinai. Lots of angels were witnessing this moment. The glory of God was on display, but God went to Moses and gave him the Mosaic covenant. And then Moses had to go down the mountain to the people as a mediator between God and people and say, here's God's Mosaic covenant, here's God's law. And Paul's saying, can you not see that these are two completely different covenants ratified in completely different ways. And actually the promise is so much better than the Mosaic law because the promise came from God directly to Abraham and there was no mediator between God and people. The law is a secondary covenant and it is inferior to the covenant of promise. And in these two covenants, there are different ways of receiving the inheritance. There are different ways of receiving the inheritance or the blessing of God. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And Paul is saying again something radical and would have been shocking to his Jewish opponents. What he's actually saying to them is that there is no inheritance to be found in the covenant of law, there is no inheritance in the Mosaic covenant. And you see what Paul is trying to answer is a fun, in, in chapter three and, and in parts of Galatians in general, he's trying to answer a fundamental question to, to kind of see, help his opponent see that they're missing a whole bunch. And that question is, who are Abraham's true children? And thus heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? Who receives the promise are the true children of Abraham and who are the true children of Abraham? And in Paul saying that they're basically arguing that there is no inheritance in the Mosaic covenant. He's saying that that if works-based righteousness and obedience to your law is your hope to be a true child of Abraham, you're not a child. You're not worthy of inheritance. It's a radical statement that Paul is saying to his Jewish listeners You see, under the law, the inheritance would be obtained by human effort and works-based righteousness. And we just heard last week that Paul argued that there is only curse there. There is only curse there. Now Paul's arguing there is no inheritance there. You won't find it in works-based righteousness and obedience to the law. The promise and the way that you find inheritance under the promise is the the inheritance under the promise is obtained as a gift of God's grace and him fulfilling the promise. I want us to get that. There is a promise that went to Abraham and that promise was by God. And we can know that the blessing will come to the people of God, not because of our works and efforts, but because God is true to his word. Again, Leila just gets it so wrong. She gets so confused. She now says, she misunderstands this word promise. She now goes, Dad, I promise I need a chocolate. I promise I need a chocolate. And she's, she's caught onto something with this word promise. She knows that when I use the word promise, I'm gonna follow through on it. And she's trying to manipulate the word promise to make me follow through on giving her a chocolate. But what she's getting right is that she knows that when her father says that I promise I'm going to use every ounce of my ability to follow through on it and it's not based on her efforts, it's mine. When I am late to pick her up from school and she is sad about that, I go, Leila, I promise tomorrow I will be on time. There is no burden placed on her. It is all placed on me to follow through the next day. And that's what God is saying. There is a covenant of promise and the burden rests completely on me to follow through. And we spoke about this inheritance and and this inheritance is partially fulfilled, this this promise that you will become a blessed nation and that I will pour out my blessing on you and you will inherit the land and I will pour out my spirit and you will be my people and I will be your God is partly realized at the time at which the Israelites take, take hold of the promised land, but it's not fully realized then. And we see this promise passed on to the children of Abraham and it gets to David and then there's this foretold reality that the one would come from the line of David and that he would be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise and that person would be Jesus and we're gonna get there. And that the promise wasn't just for an inheritance in this life and it wasn't just a, a promise for the people, but actually it goes so much bigger than that, that the promise was ultimately that Abraham would inherit the world, which is looking forward to the reality that Jesus one day is going to return, wrap up human history and everyone that has put their faith in Him will enjoy the full benefits of everything that He won at the cross in His resurrection. And that it's all ours in Him. Paul says this so clearly in Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, of the world, that's looking forward, did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. And the good news is that the order of God's redemptive plan matters and that the promise of God still stands. And the way to become sons and daughters of God and receive our inheritance is through promise, not through law. And the law has not superseded the promise. The promise supersedes the law. What this means for us as people now, And Ryan touched on this last week when he gave that analogy of how people come to faith and they've experienced the goodness of God. They've experienced the grace and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus. They've known the experience of the Spirit poured out. They've gone, yes, God, I love you. You love me. This is incredible. And then we go, you have to read your Bible. You have to go to church. You have to do all these things. And if you don't follow this church tradition and do it in this way, then you're probably getting it wrong. And we can add these false laws onto people. And here's the truth, church. No law post the promise ever supersedes the promise. God dealing with his people is always completely and fully by promise, his grace, his mercy, his doing. And that's encouraging for us as Christ followers in the culture that we live. We should be the most free people as culture is so fragmented and and each fragment and each tribe comes up with its own rules and its own regulations and its own laws. Christ follow, you do not need to step under or into the laws of our culture. We are people under promise of God and that supersedes every law and every regulation that anyone would ever try and put on us. We are the freest people on this planet in Christ. And because of this, we no longer need a babysitter. We no longer need a babysitter. What do I mean? Well, we've gotten to this point and you probably felt this last week as you probably felt yourself asking the question. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. For those of us who did, when, Paul, when Ryan was preaching, you kind of go, well, well, what about the law? Why do we have the law? Why do we need it? And Ian, what you're saying, what, what, what Paul's saying about the law, why do we even need the law? And Paul's so aware that his Jewish readers are getting to the point where they're going, well, then was the law mistaken? Was it necessary and why the law? And in verse 19, he, he realizes this and he goes, why then the law? And he asks the question that he knows everybody's asking. And then he goes on to answer that question. And he says this, it was added because of transgressions. Gives a direct answer. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions. And this phrase can mean a few things. One, it could mean to provide a sacrificial system to deal temporarily with transgressions. Two, to teach people more clearly what God requires and thereby to restrain transgressions. Three, to show that transgressions violated an explicit written law. Or four, to reveal people's sinfulness and need for a savior. And all these senses of this word are theologically true and we see them within the the law and we see it within the teachings of the New Testament that the law performs all these functions. But in the context of what Paul is arguing here, I think what he's getting at is that the law showed us how desperately we need a savior. And we see that back because Paul argued when he was talking to Peter and he was arguing with Peter, he said to Peter, he said, Peter, just remember we were under the law, we had the law, we had the blessings of God, we understood the ways of God and remember that we came to a realisation that despite that, we were still sinners like the Gentiles in need of a saviour. And actually, if you look at the history of Israel, all those things, all those theological claims about the law are true, but what actually ended up happening is them constantly breaking the law them constantly rebelling against the law of God. And in some ways, all it did in the history of Israel was reveal how unfaithful they are and how incapable they are through works-based righteousness of keeping the covenant of God. Romans 3.20 says it explicitly, Paul says it, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And what Paul is is getting at and what Paul is pointing to is that the law serves a completely different purpose to the covenant of promise. They're not the same thing. They have different purposes. Which is why he says in verse 21 this, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Why are these things not in conflict with each other? Because they serve different purposes. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see what Paul's going at, getting at there is he's saying there are two different purposes. The purpose of the promise is to bring about righteousness and life. That's God's work. <laughs> God needs to do that, bring about righteousness and life. The purpose of the law was to imprison everything under sin. That was the purpose of the law. It would reveal our sin. It would reveal our inability to, to achieve a righteousness of our own. And in fact, it was, it's almost like the harder you try, the more imprisoned you become to your sin. The more self-righteous you get, the more you seek a righteousness apart from the promise, the deeper into the valley of sin you go until the point you realize I am in a deep valley, I am on my knees and I can't get myself out. And the promise offers us a way out. The purpose of the law is to show our need for a savior and to reveal our sin. And the purpose of the promise is that God by his grace and his doing would bring about righteousness and forgiveness of sin and the opportunity to experience his spirit and be in relationship with him. Verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The purpose of the promise is to bring about life. And the purpose of the law is to highlight how desperately we need the promise. That's what Paul is saying. And that there is no hope in the law apart from promise. That's why Paul goes on to, as he unpacks why the law to, to speak of it this way. And, and he, says, he actually said something quite profound earlier on in the, the chapter that I wanna read now in verse 16 that will help us understand what Paul's getting at as he's grappling with the different purposes of the, the covenant of promise and the covenant of law. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ what Paul is getting at there is he's simply saying that something has happened. Because the person of Jesus has stepped into human history, gone to a cross, been raised from death to light, poured out his spirit and is now seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. All these events, they mean something massive in God's history of salvation. An era has ended and a new era has begun. These events have ushered in something completely different and new. And Paul unpacks this in verse 23. So when we drop back down to verse 23, it says this, now before faith came, that is in Christ. So so before faith, that's what Paul was just talking about in verse 16. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We now, we no longer live in the era of law and sin and a works based obedience and a righteousness there. That's gone. That era is gone. It's behind us. It had its purpose, it served its purpose, and it's done. In the coming of Christ, we now live in the era of life and spirit and presence and a knowledge of the Father and enjoying Him and the people of God and the church and all the blessings and the promise of Abraham being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And as we put our faith in Him, we have hope for the future and for life. That's where we live now. The law is behind us. And Paul likens it to a guardian. And he says, it had its purpose, but it served its time. You needed a guardian, we don't need it anymore. One of the great joys of being a dad is when I go home to Nathan after work. And he has a nanny, he's too young to go to school and law works, so he has a nanny, Ashley. He loves Ashley, Ashley loves him. She's his guardian during the day, his nanny during the day. But there is a moment that when I come home, he just lights up. It is the best feeling. And he runs towards me and he goes, dad, he doesn't say it like that, father, daddy, what does he say, daddy? And he grabs me and he takes me to what he was doing and he wants me to see what he was doing and he wants me to enjoy him and he's so glad that he now has my presence and sometimes he takes me to trampoline, we jump. He just wants to be with me. There's no longer a need for his nanny. There's no longer a need for Ashley. She served her purpose but his dad is home and he would rather have the presence of his father in the presence of his nanny. And you know what? When it comes to dealing with sin, when it comes to dealing with sin, it is silly to go back to law. It is silly to go back to the nanny. You know, when Ashley disciplines Nathan, when he hits someone or throws something that he shouldn't throw, you know how she disciplines him? No, Nathan, no. Your dad would not be pleased with that. You know that he has said that, you're not allowed to do that. Your dad has told me that you are only allowed to throw balls. You're not allowed to throw marbles. Your dad has told me you're not allowed to hit Pearson. Stop hitting Pearson. Happened this week. But that's all she can do. What happens when I come home to my son and he is throwing marbles instead of rocks? He is hitting Pearson instead of... Being a friend to him, what do I do? I mean, you get it, marbles instead of balls. You get what I'm saying. What happens in that moment is that I get to get down on my knee in front of Nathan. I get to grab him. I get to pull him close to me and I get to look him in the eye and I get to say, my son, I love you. Nothing will change that. You are my beloved son. And anything you say and do cannot change that because I choose to love you. And I get to pick him up and I get to hold him. And I get to say, what you're doing is not in line with your sonship, but it doesn't change anything about how I feel about you. I delight in you, my son. And this has to stop. Let's walk this road together. That's the difference. And Nanny can't affirm how much she loves you as your father. And what Paul is saying is don't substitute the father and the power of the father for a nanny. And it is futile to fight sin under law. It is futile. That experiment has been done. That was the nanny, that was the guardian. It wasn't an experiment. It was the plan and purposes of God, and it served his plans and its purposes. You know when we try to fight sin with law, you know what happens in our hearts? there are two things I think that can happen. Maybe more, but I've seen two things happen in my own heart and soul. And I think the scriptures teach these things. Is you can have, by your willpower, victory over sinful behavior. And that's a partial victory. It can feel like full victory. I no longer do this thing. I no longer do that. I no longer behave that way but actually what's going on in the heart level is that it was actually just rebellion against God that you were doing those things. And instead of going to the father to allow him to help you change your heart and learn to love him more than those things, what you did is loved self and said, I have the willpower to change this behavior and you've changed it. And what that tends to do, the heart, is not soften it and grow into deeper dependence of the father. What it tends to do is harden the heart and make us prideful. And we find ourselves looking down on everybody else and going, oh, you don't have the willpower I have. How is it that you still do that thing? Don't you know that that's wrong? You shouldn't be doing that. How how dare you do that? And we become incredibly prideful and judgmental, but actually our hearts haven't changed at all and we're still locked in under sin of the law. The other thing I've seen happen to people when you try and deal with your sin with the law is you fail and you become hopeless And you feel shame and condemnation and guilt take hold of your heart. And that becomes a downward spiral into deeper levels of sin. Because that's what shame and guilt does, is it just when we don't take it to the Father, but we take it to law, we just feel the condemnation of not good enough. And so you kind of give up and go, well, down we go, down we go. And God is saying, the nanny is done. The father is here. Bring your stuff to me. I will soften the hard heart. I will forgive your sins in the person of my son, Jesus. And I delight to do that. If you would simply put your faith and trust in Jesus, You would be invited into the presence of the Father. You would experience His presence by His Spirit. And in that place, and on the foundation of being a beloved son and daughter, you can finally deal with your stuff. John Bunyan has a little thing that he said in relationship to this. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. There is power in the promise. And as our culture increases laws and regulations and we find ourselves walking on eggshells, we can say to our culture, this, this has been done. We know that law will not help us with the hate and the hostility that we feel towards each other. It will just magnify it. And Paul brings a far more hopeful way of finding unity. Namely, that we are br- brothers and sisters of promise. We are brothers and sisters of promise. And we get to a key moment in in this chapter right now. It's it's a critical moment where, where Paul through this chapter has been answering the question, who are Abraham's true children and thus heirs of the promise? And he's about to answer that question with crystal clarity, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither... Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, offspring, heirs according to promise. And the answer Paul gives to that question is, not those with Jewish heritage, not those who obey the law, not those who are marked by Jewish distinctives like circumcision, not those who obey Jewish food laws, not those who have direct lineage from Abraham, but rather everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus as a son and daughter of God. And what he's doing here is in, in using that word is a son of God, what he's speaking about is he's speaking about a son who has reached maturity A firstborn son who's reached maturity and is now no longer needing to be under a guardian, but can now inherit what the father promised. That's what he's saying. He's saying, in Christ, we have all become, we have all reached maturity in Christ. We no longer need the guardian. We are now ready to receive the promise fulfilled by Jesus. And when he says, we are all sons of God, He's including everyone into that right to inherit the kingdom of God. He's inviting every ethnic group, men and women, slave and free, poor and rich, everyone is invited through faith in Jesus to inherit all things in Christ. It's profound unity between brothers and sisters of all kinds, sons and daughters, and that unity is built on the reality that we are in Christ, represented in our baptism. We have been plunged into Jesus and we're gonna do that in a few weeks time. Plunge or show how people have been plunged into Jesus and they are unified in Jesus and that what makes them a son and daughter of this family and the global church and all the people of God is that they are in Christ and that is independent of anything or distinctive about them. Who are Abraham's true children and heirs of the promise? Simply all who have placed their faith in Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this radical equality that, that Paul is, calling, is saying exists in us is based on the finished work of Jesus. And some people have used this to say, oh, Paul's kind of obliter- obliterating dis- differences and distinctions between these things. He's not. His whole argument, his whole point is that Gentiles do not have to look like Jews to be a part of the family of God. That's his whole argument through this whole chapter is he's saying, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to look like a Jewish person to belong. You belong because you are a son and you are a daughter of God through his son. And what he's saying is that actually you can be radically different from each other and find complete unity and equality in your sonship and daughtership there is no message that speaks this way. I would argue that there's probably no religion that speaks this way other than Christianity. And the evidence for that statement is that over the history of the church, Christianity is one religion with many cultures, whereas many religions are one religion with one culture. The beauty that we have been saved by grace is allows us to celebrate every single person's difference and find complete equality and unity at the same time. When this community becomes diverse in every way, it is a display of the power and the miracle of the gospel, to do what our culture is finding impossible to do right now. There is great power in the covenant of promise. And the covenant of promise still stands. And the covenant of promise is what is shaping us as individuals and as a community. And it is having a profound impact on us by God's grace. He is doing something. I'm gonna ask us to stand. I think the big thing that I wanna drive home for us this morning is for none of us to return (laughs) to the nanny, for none of us to step under law that has passed or to step under any new laws that people wanna put on us. But for us as a community to live fully in the wonder of God's grace and goodness towards us and the life-transforming reality of His Spirit and the presence of the Father. Let us, not, let us be a community that understands and lives in the reality that we are now under the Father, not under law, and that He delights to be with us. Let me pray. Father, I pray that for any one of us in the room this morning who, who are walking in the burden, and the difficulty of self-justifying works would be free in this moment, would see what is truly on offer and would walk away from the nanny and realize that the Father is home and seek your presence freshly, Father. God, would would we meet with you now as we worship you? Would you speak loudly and clearly would we delight in your gospel and experience your delight over us? Amen.